0: If you have your Bibles, we will open to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 will be in verses 18 through 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him. Why did John's disciples... And the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, if he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that as we've learned the last two days in our gathering together, uh, at, for our secret church meeting, God, we pray um, that your word would do a work among us, God. We know that it is your word that has power. We know that it is your word that transforms. And so, God, we thank you that you've not veiled yourself, that you've not hidden yourself from us, but that you have given us your word that we might know you. And so this morning, God, we invite you to do what you will in our hearts with your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. June thirteenth, two 2009. A lot of people woke up to quite a surprise. You see, many people all over the United States didn't realize that on June 13th, their TVs were no longer going to work. On June 12th at 11.59 p.m., the Digital Transition and Public Safety Act said that all analog TV signals must cease. And so from that point forward, citizens either had to buy a new TV that would receive digital signals or they had to buy a little converter box. Many of you might have even did this yourself. That would convert the signal into a signal that their TV could receive. Uh, David Rare said, he was the then president of the uh, National Association of Broadcasters, that this transition represented the single most significant advancement in television technology since the TV uh, became color. And so we kind of see that happening and we ask, why would that be the most significant advance? Once if you wanted to watch TV free over the airwaves, then uh, you had to buy new equipment because the old equipment simply wouldn't work anymore. Your TV was broken. It was done. It wouldn't work anymore under this new system. So on June 12th, everything, as far as TVs are concerned, changed. In the same way, I think this morning we see in our text that when Jesus comes, everything changes. The old doesn't work anymore. Old behaviors, old patterns, they don't fit anymore. So in a historical sense and in a personal sense, everything changed with Christ. Historically, everything changed when Jesus came. Personally, when Jesus comes into our life, everything changes. Jesus didn't just come to reform us or to uh, improve us. I think so often we have that, that uh, confusion or that misconception that Jesus comes into our life and he, he reforms us or he improves us. No, he doesn't reform us. He regenerates us. He doesn't improve us. Uh, he makes us new. He doesn't just give us a fresh start or clean us up. He makes us alive from being dead. And I think in a politically cor- correct culture that we live in, Uh, everyone is so hypersensitive to what may offend someone that as a result in our culture, especially in the United States and in a Western culture, probably those that you work alongside of or maybe even live beside in your neighborhood would have this idea, this mentality that uh, all religions are basically the same. All religions are, are basically the same. And if you worship Buddha or if you worship any number of Hindu gods, if you follow the teachings of Muhammad, as long as you're sincere, as long as you're devout, um, as long as you're genuine in your faith and basically a good person, then we all end up in heaven or paradise, right? All roads, religiously speaking, end in the same destination. And I think here in the text this morning that what we see is that Jesus says absolutely not. That is absolutely not the case. Jesus is concerned here in the text with our primary need, personal conversion, and not whether he's politically correct, Um, this began with Jesus and at least this context with the religion that was closest to him, uh, that of Judaism. Famous pastor, some of you have probably heard of, maybe even listened to, I hope not, but maybe uh, John Hagee said this, trying to convert Jews is a waste of time. Everyone else, whether Buddhist or Baha'i needs to believe in Jesus, but not Jews. Jews already have a covenant with God. It's never been replaced with Christianity. The, Jews, uh, the Jewish people have a relationship with God through the law as given through Moses. And I believe that every Gentile person can come to God only through the cross of Christ. But I believe, I believe that every Jewish person who lives in light of the Torah, which is the word of God, has a relationship with God and will come to redemption. The text before us this morning shows us that Mr. Hagee is absolutely wrong on this point. Our text makes it abundantly clear. The Lord in this passage makes it abundantly clear that there's a disconnect. There's a separation from Christianity and Judaism. The old and the new can't come together. They're incompatible. The new wine of Christianity can't be contained in the old wineskins of Judaism. Jesus changes everything. And I think this morning, if we would be honest before the Lord and open our hearts before the Lord... Jesus in this passage is specifically talking about Judaism, but he could be talking this morning about any number of things in our own life that we may be trusting in or putting our hope in or our confidence in. Jesus changes everything, and what's old in our life is not compatible with the new. I think we see this in three ways in our text this morning. Number one, Jesus must be celebrated. Jesus must be celebrated. Remind you where we're at. If you've not been with us, we're studying through the book of Mark together. And we're in chapters 2 and 3 where we see uh, um, uh, five different controversies that Jesus will have with the religious leaders of that day. This is the third of the five controversies. To recap real quickly, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we see his first encounter. There's a paralytic man and he's being carried by four of his friends because they believe if they can get him before Jesus, then Jesus can heal him. And they go to incredible lengths. They tear a a hole in the roof of someone's house just so that they can get this guy in the presence of Jesus. And what he does, what Jesus does when they get the man there is profound. It's shocking. He doesn't immediately say, uh, be healed or get up and walk. But he says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders of that day are appalled. They're incredibly angry because in doing that, he's claiming to be God. Because God is the only one that can forgive sins. And Jesus says, exactly. That's exactly right second encounter we see with these religious leaders are in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2. In that text, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's just called Levi to be his disciple who's a tax collector. These were the most despised in that day. Of all citizens, tax collectors were the worst. And so they have this question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus profoundly answers them, I didn't come to save the righteous. I didn't come to save those that think they don't need me came to save the sick, the ones that realize they're in need of a Savior. And so both times Jesus is answering this question to his authority with the authority that he is God, he can save, that's why he came. Both times the religious leaders miss the point. They miss the joy in both of these celebrations because all they can see is Jesus doing the wrong thing. They don't see a man who's just been given his, 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 his ability to walk again. They don't see a man who's just been forgiven of his sins. Instead, they see Jesus, who they perceive to be doing all the wrong things. And so today, our third encounter is with the issue of fasting. If two weeks ago, their issue was the company that he kept while he was feasting this morning, their issue is by his lack of fasting. So whether it's feasting or fasting, these folks are concerned that Jesus is doing it all wrong. If you look again with me at verse 18, the word says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I mentioned to you this morning as we started that when Jesus comes, it changes everything historically and personally. Uh, in history and in our lives personally. So let's begin this morning. And in this first point, Jesus must be celebrated. We see that he changes everything historically. Now walk with me for a second. In the Old Testament, uh, the Jews were commanded to fast one day out of the year. That was the day of atonement. And they were to hold that standard that the Lord set before them. They should fast on the day of atonement. Well, people often fasted more than that. Followers of Yahweh fasted when they would lose a loved one, they would fast and mourn over that loss. They would fast in, in times of repentance, even national repentance, when the people of Israel would come together before the Lord and repent of sins and fast before the Lord. Oftentimes, uh, repentance and fasting was a national affair, and it was always with prayer. After Israel was uh, c- captured and, and were led into exile, uh, the leaders of Israel initiated another four to five fasts. You see those in Zechariah 8. They're being told to fast and pray that the Lord would come and be faithful and, and redeem his repeat people and restore his people. Well, by the, by the time of, of, of Jesus, these Pharisees, these religious leaders between the Old Testament, the close of the Old Testament when the, uh, the Israelites are in exile, and the New Testament where Christ is on the scene, the Pharisees had come and instituted even more fasts for people that really wanted to be holy. And I'm being facetious there because it is uh, the appearance that we get. They were fasting two times a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, so do you see the elevation of their, their strict laws that they're putting, are superimposing upon the people. And this was considered to be a sign of great piety. The, the Pharisees wanted to make sure that you didn't miss it. They wanted to make sure that you saw that they were fasting. And so uh, oftentimes they would uh, put ash on their face and they would contort their faces. It's almost like, you know, if if, if somebody were fasting in our day and they're you know they're having a down day and, and they're just so sad and you walk up to them and you're like, hey, what's going on? I'm fasting. <laughs> just want you to know I'm fasting. Uh, that's why I look like I'm starving right now, I haven't eaten in, like, Three hours. Um, this is the idea with these Pharisees. They, they would disfigure their face, and they wanted everyone to know of their, of their holiness and their piety by, uh, by doing this. And, so, and, that's, and that's against what even their Old Testament prophets would have said, of this idea of fasting without repentance, fasting for, for self-glory. Uh, you see that in Isaiah 58, Zechariah 7. They're warned against this type of fasting, and yet they did it anyways. And Jesus condemned this type of hypocritical fasting in Matthew 6. Verse 16, Jesus says, and when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. So Jesus says to to them that that, that this this, this idea of fasting for man's approval, fasting to show how holy you are, that's all the credit you're going to get because that's all it's worth. You're doing it for yourself and you're not doing it before the Lord for the right reasons. And so we see this, this, this idea of fasting evolve from what it was in the Old Testament, where it's a single day of fasting uh, for the Day of Atonement to this, 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 this practice that becomes hypocritical. And then in the midst of that, you see John the Baptist's disciples fasting. But it's for an altogether different reason. Their fasting was different. You remember what John is preaching in the wilderness? He's preaching Repentance. He's going back to the Old Testament use of, of fasting, and he's telling the, the people of Israel, repent of your sins, turn back to the Lord, and fast as you do it. But more than that, if you, if you follow John's disciples, they're fasting because John is preparing the way for the Messiah. They're fasting in preparation for the coming Messiah that the Old Testament has told them would be here. They're, they're preparing their hearts. They're repenting of sin. They're praying that the Messiah would come, and they're fasting as they do that. So they're they're fasting for very different reasons, these Pharisees and these disciples of John. But the point is they had something in common. They were both fasting, and that's what's being brought brought out in the text. They were both fasting, and Jesus' disciples were not fasting. And so you see the question, right? The Pharisees are observing that Levi's party... He's eating with these tax collectors and sinners. He's just called one of these tax collectors to be his personal disciple. He's a rabbi. He now has a disciple who's a tax collector. That doesn't make sense. And now he's eating with all these folks. And that doesn't make sense. But then Jesus answers them and makes fools out of them in his, in his, in his answer to their question. And so then this question, John's disciples fast. The Pharisees fast. If you're so spiritual, Jesus, and if you're such a great rabbi, then how come your followers don't live up to these high religious standards that you see these other disciples living up to? I love the way that Jesus just answers these accusers here with a question. He he, he turns the situation, and Jesus has a way of doing that, right? I I think we so often get this idea of a soft, namby-pamby Jesus in our mind, but the way he answers them is quite profound, and we've seen him do that twice already. But in verse 19, look what Jesus says. And he said to them, can a the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The answer there is obvious. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And so we see that Jesus here is not opposed to fasting. We need to make sure we see that. The gospel writers show us that Jesus himself fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. At the start of his ministry, he withdrew and took time away and would go without food so that he could be before the Lord. We see that in Jesus' life. He's not opposed to fasting. Matthew 6, 16, which we've already read, it shows us that he's assuming that his disciples will be fasting. He starts the passage, when you fast, don't do like the hypocrites. So the assumption there is you will fast because you're not to be like the hypocrites when you do it. So he's assuming they will. And so when you consider that Jesus actually thinks fasting is a pretty good idea and it should be done, then it makes his answer a bit strange. He brings up this parable of a wedding feast and he asks this rhetorical question, can the guests fast while the bridegroom is with them think about the answer to that it's obvious to them it should be to us as well guests don't fast while the bridegroom is there that's 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 an obvious thing a wedding is a time of joy a wedding should be a time of celebration a time of feasting think about your wedding if you're married you come together with your family and your closest friends like your best friends are on stage with you and then the, the ones that didn't make the cut are still out in the crowd. But then after that, you go to a reception somewhere and you have all this food spread out and you, you have your dancing shoes on and the music starts up and it's just a time of joy and celebration where you're, you're eating and you're, you're going around the room talking to those people you love. Maybe some you haven't seen in a long time and you're, and you're having a great time. It's a joyous time. It's one of the most happy times in a person's life and it would have been in this, in this day as well. It was actually a more drawn out process in this day. It was a feast. It was a celebration. Fasting is a time of self-denial and sorrow. So the question is is, is very obvious here. It would make no sense to fast during a wedding feast. I know some of the dads in this room that have paid for daughters' weddings are probably thinking, well, it might not have been such a bad idea. I would have saved my pocketbook uh, if we would have had some fasting going on at the reception. That's not what we do at receptions. That's not what we do at weddings. And Jesus is making that point. What's Jesus saying here? Why would he bring up this analogy? Why would he present this as the answer to their questions about fasting? The point's clear, and Jesus is being abundantly clear this morning, that he is the bridegroom. That's what he's saying to them. I am the bridegroom. I am the one that Israel has been waiting for. I'm the one that John's disciples have been praying and fasting and waiting for. I am the bridegroom, and I am now here. Jesus, the groom, is here. He has come, and that changes everything. It's not a time to mourn and, and be sorrowful. It's not a time to fast. It's a time to rejoice. Fasting is inappropriate because this is a time of joy. Fasting is out of the question, so celebrate the groom. That's what Jesus is saying. The one that his disciples have been fasting and praying for is now here. Celebrate. So I think there's some application in this for us church family. That this morning we would remember that we are the bride of Christ. That we as the church are the the bride of Christ and he is the groom. And that he's given his life for the church. He's come to establish a relationship with us. He's come into this world so that we can have our sins forgiven and become his bride. And a relationship with Christ is not a boring thing. It's not a lifeless thing. It's not something that that you just go through in in complete solemn uh, demeanor. It's a celebration. A relationship with this groom is something that we should celebrate. It's a feast of joy and blessing that we would have a relationship with the groom. And we see this throughout church history. When we examine the church throughout the ages. In the first century, the first followers of Christ were actually accused of being drunk because they were so full of joy over this relationship that they had through Christ. Thousands or a few hundred years later, the Franciscans... You see that they're rebuked for laughing in church because they were so happy to be with other believers. The Methodists, a few hundred years after that, they literally put their their hymns to musical tunes from operas. and And they put the Psalms of the Bible to dance music. Because that was the happiest music they could hear. And they wanted to sing with joy and excitement when they gathered together. Friends, listen, the Christian life is something that should be full of joy. For, for Christians in the room this morning, our joy is in Christ the groom and that he's come for us. We don't mourn. It's time to celebrate. He's changed everything. When he entered into this world, all of history shifted. But Jesus is saying something more than this. While that's true, Jesus is not just saying, I'm the groom, rejoice. He's also saying, I am God, submit. Submit. You see this, the Old Testament doesn't equate the Messiah with being the bridegroom. You don't see that in the Old Testament. Certainly the Messiah is prophesied, but he's never being uh, talked about as the groom. But the language of bridegroom does come up in the Old Testament. But here's here's, here's where it's different. In Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10, Isaiah chapter 62 verse 4 and 5, and then in the book of Hosea, scattered, the idea of a bridegroom does come up, but it's Yahweh who is bridegroom. Yahweh is the groom for his people. And here, when Jesus presents this illustration of a wedding feast, and when Jesus here clearly claims to be the groom, then friends, don't miss this. He is clearly claiming to be Yahweh. Yahweh. And these religious leaders wouldn't have missed that. They would have totally understood that's what Jesus was saying. He's talking about himself as being the groom. He's saying he's Yahweh, that he is God. And that's what they've already gotten mad about this first time with the forgiveness of sins of the paralytic man. They would eventually kill him because of this claim. So Jesus must be celebrated. The groom comes down into history to save his people from their sins and he must be celebrated. Time of fasting is over. Celebrate this groom. But then the text takes a drastic shift. We see that Jesus changes everything but the second point we see this morning is the price of our salvation must be remembered. Jesus must be celebrated but the price of our salvation must be remembered. Look at verse 20. The days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Friends, Jesus changes everything historically, but he also changes everything personally. When Jesus comes, everything changes. And this statement demonstrates that there is a time for fasting. There is a time for sorrow and a time for mourning and all that comes with it. In the text, the phrase taken away, that the the groom will be taken away, is the same verb that's used in Isaiah 53. If you remember Isaiah 53, it's a very uh, popular prophetic telling of Jesus' death. The lamb led to slaughter. And then in Isaiah 53, it says that by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So here, Jesus is using a bit of foreshadowing. And then really, for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus specifically alludes to his death. I know two weeks ago, we talked about uh, Jesus' statement. What's easier, to say to this man, get up and walk, or to say that your sins are forgiven? And that in saying that, he was saying, it's, it's, it's going to be harder than you could ever imagine to affect the forgiveness of sins because I had to die. Jesus knew that, even when he said that to the paralytic man. But here, Jesus is even being more clear. This is the first time that he's specifically saying this groom, this one that he's comparing himself to, would be taken away. And it's a strange statement, isn't it? I mean, think about a wedding. They would have recognized this. We should recognize this too. At a wedding, you, you, have, you have a great feast, a time of celebration. You, you eat until your bellies are full and you, you, you visit with family and friends and eventually the guests leave. That's the way weddings work. Jesus inserts this idea here that's quite foreign to them and is to us as well. The idea that in the middle of this wedding feast, in the middle of this celebration, that the groom would be taken away, forcibly removed snatched away is the idea that the the original language has there what is jesus doing and saying that jesus knows that the kingdom of god has come near the kingdom of god has made a personal appearance in the person of jesus christ the kingdom of god is on earth in christ but that the final victory is far from one Jesus knew this early in his ministry and for Mark, and this early in Mark's gospel, that to conquer sin, that to conquer death, to conquer hell, the groom must become a murder victim. To conquer the grave, Jesus, the groom, had to die. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for what he came to do, which in Mark chapter 10 we learn is to give his life for, as a ransom for many. Jesus is preparing his disciples for that day when he would die a criminal's death. Danny Aiken in his commentary on this text, says this. The bridegroom, our Lord Jesus, would be snatched away to suffer alone on a cross to atone for our sins. To die the death, we should have died. To pay the price for sin, we should have paid. He died in my place. He bore my wrath. He took my judgment. Listen, church family, God killed his son so he would not have to kill me. There's an appropriate time to fast and to mourn, and it is when I consider the infinite price paid for my sin by the Savior. So you see, when Jesus came, it changed everything historically. It was the crux. It was the point, the hinge in history, which everything else revolves around. When Jesus came, he fulfilled Jewish law. He fulfilled messianic prophecy, but it also changes everything in me personally. You see, we celebrate the groom. We make much of the groom. We feast in joy and blessing that the groom brings, but we also mourn because of our sin. We mourn because of the grief that we've caused the groom. We mourn because the groom had to die. And yes, fasting is still relevant and applicable. Think about this. As John's disciples were fasting, remember why they're fasting. John's disciples are praying and repenting and fasting and awaiting the Messiah in the same way. We today, we wait And we mourn over our sin and we repent of our sin and we pray and we await the Messiah's return. He's coming back. That's the testimony of Scripture that He came and John's disciples saw Him, but He's coming again and we'll see Him. And especially I think today, on a Sunday after an event like we've seen in the last week, this shooting in Las Vegas that we see around us in a world that is, Immersed in evil and sin. We crowd even more. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. We know you're we know you're a God of justice and mercy. Would you come and make right the things in this world that we see are absolutely wrong and fallen? Would you come and we pray and we repent of our sins? We acknowledge that if but not for the grace of God, we would be there. And we say, God, would you come? Would you make things right? Would you bring peace? around us. So Jesus changes everything and we see that he must be celebrated, but we see that the price of our salvation must be remembered. Third thing I think we see in the last two verses here, how Jesus changes everything personally in our own lives, is that the old must be replaced by the new. So number three, the old must be replaced by the new. Look at verses 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine skin into old uh, new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. At this point in his confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus turns from this wedding analogy, this picture of a wedding where he's the groom, and he gives two parables. And he illustrates here in these two parables the significance of the groom's coming. Again, that's still the idea, that Jesus' coming is like that of a groom and it's a time to celebrate and rejoice because the long-awaited Messiah is now here. And now he gives these two illustrations, these two uh, points or parables, if you will, to illustrate uh, why that is significant and how things are changing now that he's here. And again, just backtrack with me, starting in verse 17, in confrontation with the religious leaders that he's had, we already see that he's come to save sinners, not the self-righteous, not those that, that, that have no need of Christ. And then in verse 19, we see that he comes to bring joy and not mourning. And so Jesus' point is clear here as he moves into these two parables. The question is not, Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? The question is, Pharisees, why do you fail to feast and to celebrate the presence of the Messiah? That's the point. They've missed it. They've missed who he is and the the result and the response to his coming. And so the implication is then that you can't just hold on to your rituals. You can't hold on to your traditions and enter into this new relationship that he's come to initiate. That's why they're missing it. Their rituals, their routines, their traditions, the laws of man that they had put in place and elevated to the point of Scripture was putting up blinders where they weren't seeing this king, the Messiah, that had come to establish a new relationship with man. Jesus is showing that his coming is for the purpose of making all things new. He's not just coming to recycle and to reinvent or to revamp what's there in the old. With Jesus, it's not just that everything changes It's that everything must change, church family. I think that's what we see here. The old must be replaced by the new. And this is where I think we see that the the quote from Pastor Hagee is absolutely wrong. Judaism must give way to Christianity. The old covenant is superseded by the new that for the Hebrew faith, for those Israelites in that day, and for all peoples today, and whatever religions they may be holding on to, whatever hopes they may have in their own heart, Jesus is the fulfillment and completion of all of those things. And he is the one that must be trusted. He is the one that supersedes Jewish law and Jewish religion, as well as any other religion in the world. And it's an exclusive thing. I think that's what we see in these two parables. Look at verse 21. We see, I've already read, but we get this idea in this first parable, the idea of, uh, of unshrunk cloth. We, we, we can imagine this even in our own minds because we've seen when ha- what happens when you put a wool sweater or something in the, in the, in the dryer and it, it dries up and it becomes something that would fit on a child's like baby doll or something. And the idea here is even more emphasized in their day because for us, most of our clothes are pre-shrunk. So they may shrink up a little bit, but in this day, the, the natural fibers and, and, and fabrics that they were using, they would have shrunk a lot. And so you began to, to wash something. Say you had a pair of blue jeans, or I guess in that day it would have been like a robe or something, and you, you, it was your work robe, and you wore it all the time, and so you washed it all the time, and it, it, it got to a point where it wouldn't shrink anymore. It became just the way it is, the shape that it is. One day you're out in the the yard on a pretty Galilean spring day and you're uh, playing Yahtzee or something with your neighbor and you step over a fig bush and it snags your robe and you have this hole now in it. And you you wouldn't go into the house and and grab a fresh piece of fabric and sew it onto that hole because what would happen is when you wash it, I mean this makes sense, it shrinks up but the rest of the garment stays the same and so as it does, it, it pulls and tears the garment. You have you're left with a larger hole. You've, you're left with a garment now that's even got a, a bigger problem, a bigger hole that can't be mended. So what's Jesus saying here? What's the point of him bringing out this illustration with laundry? That the old is not compatible with the new. It's not that the old was bad. No, God even actually initiated the old. The old was good, but it's not compatible with the new. It's no longer usable. What Jesus has come to do supersedes the old. It's been replaced by something better. And then in verse 22, he gives another illustration, the illustration of a wineskin. In that day, in Jesus' day, goats would have been skinned and their hides kept as large and and, and together as possible and would have been sewn together to make containers for holding water and for wine. And when they were new, the elasticity of that leather of that skin would allow it to, to expand and contract. And so you put new wine in it, and new wine is wine that's not fully fermented, uh, I know we struggle with this as Baptists, right? Like but but just bear with me. Wine ferments and it, it, it has to expand a little bit. And so if you if you put it in a new wineskin it can do that. But if you put it in an old wine skin that's become brittle and it's expanded as much as it can and it's dried out over time, it becomes fragile. You put the the, the new wine in it, when it when it expands from fermentation it breaks. That's the point he's making. You put new wine into an old container, and when it ferments, it it bursts the skin, and you lose not only your wineskin, but your wine, which is probably more valuable than your wineskin, because it's old and fragile at this point. What Jesus is saying here is clear. He's not just something that can be tagged onto your life like a a patch. He's not just something that that can be incorporated into your life like like this wineskin. No, Jesus changes everything, friends. And think about this, in each case that he's, he's given us here, each of these illustrations that he's given us, something is destroyed. I think, I think we, should, we should see that in the text this morning. Don't miss that. God doesn't just make us better. He doesn't just clean us up. He kills whatever is in our hearts that we're trusting in, and he replaces it with himself. He's created us, uh, to, made us into a new creation. That's what he's come to do. He's not just mending us. He's making us new. He's giving us life. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. There's a heart transplant. There's life being given where there was death. That's what Christ came to do. And that's incompatible with just behavior modification, just cleaning yourself up, just becoming a devout person or a religious person or just behaving a certain way shortly after World War I, uh, ceased. Um, Dr. Barnhouse, Dr. Donald Barnhouse, Presbyterian pastor, uh, written a lot of commentary, different writings, visited the battlefields of Belgium. And as he was uh, walking through uh, those battlefields, those great sites, um, remember at the end of the war, the Germans retreated quite quickly from uh, the, the conclusion of World War I, and when they did, they left their mili- military paraphernalia there just as it was. And so he was walking down these roads, literally miles of roads lined with artillery and tanks and trucks and weapons and equipment from the battlefields as the Germans left in haste. Barnfield uh, Barnhouse describes how uh, this is a, a beautiful spring day in Belgium. The sun is shining, and he's, he's walking, he's examining this this German war material. He notices that leaves are falling from the trees that are hanging over the, the, the roadways. And in particular, he notices that these, as these leaves are falling, one catches his shirt and he takes it in his hand, and as he's looking at it, it just disintegrates into nothing. It's just fragile. This puzzled him, and uh, it's confusing to him because many leaves are falling at this time, and, and it's not autumn. It's spring. It's not fall. There's no wind really blowing these leaves off the tree. The leaves the leaves were just seemingly falling and and they had outlived autumn. They had outlived the the bitter cold of, of winter, and now spring is here and seemingly with no cause they're falling. And then he realized what was going on. It's springtime. And that the sap had begun to, to, to stir in these trees and, and run. And that the, the buds of spring were beginning to, to pop out on the end of these limbs. And deep beneath the earth, the, the dark soil was taking in water. And the roots were bringing life into the trunk of the tree. And, and that life was spreading out into the limbs of the tree. And the twigs were taking on, on life. And, and And those buds were pushing those old leaves off of the tree so that new life could come into that tree. And this is what he was experiencing. And he was seeing these fragile, fragile leaves that had outlived the winter and just vaporized almost in his hand because of the new life that was coming into the tree. He expelled the deadness of the leaves from before. And he said this the Scottish preacher said this. He was noticing that the expulsive power of new affection was taking over in this tree. And here's, here's where I think this relates to what we're talking about this morning, church family. When we experience the new life that Christ has given us, it expels, it pushes out everything in us that we were hoping in, trusting in, living our lives for before so that Christ, the king of the universe, the groom that gave his life for the bride, can have first place and priority in our hearts. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says this, When Christ fills the wineskins of our lives, the swelling life within stretches us to new limits. The inner pressure expels unneeded things and fills every aspect of life. Those who have not yet had Christ take up residence in their life can scarcely imagine how fully they will be filled. Every aspect of their humanity, from their intellect to their emotions, will be changed. Have you experienced that, church family? Have you had that happen in your life? Everything must change because the new Jesus is incompatible with the old, whatever else you may have been trusting in. I think if Jesus were teaching this today, he uses these analogies here, but friends, it's, it's a simple, simple analogy. That the old is incompatible with the new. You just can't stick a DVD in a VCR. It doesn't work. You can't stick a CD in an 8-track player. See, some of you guys didn't know I even knew what an 8-track player was. thought I was too young. It doesn't work. It's incompatible. The technology doesn't even fit. And that's what Jesus is saying. You can't just live as if this one, the groom, never came. So what will you do with this one, Jesus, the groom? Will you surrender to him? Your worldview, the things you're hoping in, your intellect, your emotions, your cherished customs. Will you give to him the one who has come to take and to make everything new in your life? See, these religious leaders here were hoping in the customs, the traditions of Judaism. They were hoping in their walls when the actual hope of the world was standing right before their eyes. And friends, it would be foolish for us to point fingers at the Pharisees and religious leaders of that day and miss what may be happening in this room right now. Is that we're hoping in something, whether it's our works, whether it's uh, some type of system of belief, whether it's, it's being a good person. Whether it's church attendance, we're hoping in something. But if that something is not the blood of Christ, then the hope of the world stands before your face this morning in the word of God. Would you yield to him this morning? Would you give your life to him? That's what separates Christianity from every other world religion. Every other world religion. It's what you do. It's what you do to earn forgiveness, to earn a pleasing of God, a merit before God. In Christianity, it's what, about, it's what God did for you in sending his son on behalf of you, the groom in your place. And friends, we botch it. We mess it up when we try to add anything to it. The new has come Will you give your life to this groom fully and completely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, I do pray for every person in this room that as we pray and think through desires of our hearts what we're hoping in what our confidence is in may it be the blood of christ alone father would you reveal to us in our own hearts where we may be trusting in other things god where there may be things in our hearts that we're wanting to hold on to and cling to help us to not have blind spots in our own faith and our own beliefs help us to yield this morning to christ father if there's anyone in this room this morning that's never experience the change that jesus brings i pray this morning would be the day that they would give their heart and life to you help us to respond this morning as your spirit leads it's in jesus name i pray amen let's stand this morning church family let's sing let's sing together in, in response to the word that we've heard if you're here this morning and need to make that decision to trust christ to give your life to him i'll be available come talk to me right now after the service But don't leave the day without letting this one, the groom, who's come, change everything in your life. Let's sing and respond.